Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're going to be talking with this incredible founder, uh, also an author of several books, and we're going to be talking about building and scaling in Europe and then also moving to the US. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Krister Holloman. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So originally born in Sweden, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? So I was born very close to the Arctic Circle. Uh, so for, I'm not sure if you had the opportunity to be up there, but the summers are pretty remarkable. The, the sun never sets. So as you see the sun hitting the horizon, it goes up again. But then on the flip side, in the winter, you barely see the sun. So you can be in complete darkness for weeks on end, more or less. So pretty epic in, in that sense. But yeah, very idyllic. It's very green, very clean, very safe. Um, so yeah, I, I'm super grateful for, for the opportunity to to grow up there. And then you also did your military service there. So, I mean, how, how was, because, you know, typically in the U.S. you don't do that. I mean, you, you see that more like in Israel and other places. So, I mean, what kind of ethics do you think or, 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 or perspective did doing the military bring you? So I was one of the last generations that were mandatory had to do the military service. Uh, since I did it, now it's very much on an opt-in basis. So Sweden has uh, famously been neutral for, for centuries. Um, and part of being able to be neutral is to have a credible defense. So uh, it's, it's uh, kind of just something we had to do. It's, it's part of almost like a, uh, a rite of passage uh, for, for a generation of, of, of Swedes that had to, to do it. Um, yeah, I thought it was a unique experience. I'm very grateful for it. It's clearly not something, hopefully, that I'll ever be able to or need to use uh, skills or, or experience that I need to use again. Um, so, yeah, but I thought it was, uh, it was fun to do it. And I feel that I'm more well-rounded because of having had that experience. And then in that case, I mean, obviously you were in Sweden, you did the military there, you did your undergrad there as well. I mean, at what point do you realize that maybe it makes sense to make a move and land in London? So as I mentioned, I'm, I'm from the very far north. It's a very small place. And, and I realized pretty quickly that if I wanted to become successful, if I wanted to make something of myself, I can't stay in that small city. So I had my heart and my head set on Stockholm, the capital of Sweden, when I was a teenager. And I tried to go there as often as I could to see friends or uh, live in the big city. When I went to university, I had the opportunity to apply for a scholarship to come work in London for a year at the Swedish Chamber of Commerce. So I applied and I was very fortunate to, to get that opportunity. So after I finished my undergrad, I moved to London. And the idea was to spend a year there. But having been there for a few weeks, for a few months, I realized what was I thinking about trying to go to Stockholm? Clearly, London is the place to be. Way bigger, more fun, more exciting. So, yeah, ended up skipping Stockholm altogether and going straight to London. So in London, tell us about landing in London. What happened next? So in the beginning, I worked for a series of newspapers. I worked for a U.S. newspaper group called Gannett, helping them launch a new, for Europe at the time, a new job board called careerbuilder.com. Uh, and then I worked for the Times and the Sunday Times, again, helping them to deliver new product innovations, put new products and service out in the market. 
learning them or helping them figure out how to make money online. Because obviously up until that point, they've been making all the money on ads in physical paper. People weren't buying them. Um, so they had to transition their business online, as we all know, as, as consumers of the news. Um, so yeah, so I spent the first chunk of my career uh, doing that. And that was quite a, a rocket ship. Uh, so in this case for you, you know, you were also one of the first um, uh, employees, you know, for, for Glassdoor. So tell us about Glassdoor too. Yeah. So when I was working for the newspapers, uh, one of the most significant revenue opportunities that we had was classified. So jobs, uh, automotive and so on. So Glassdoor is a review website where you as an employee can review your employer. Uh, and this is the part of Glassdoor that most people are familiar about. But where they make a lot of money is to classify it. So I had the opportunity to join Glassdoor as the first employee outside the U.S., to help them launch and build up the European operations. Um, so yeah, at the time that we were 100 people, my boss is in San Francisco, uh, and today uh, they're over a thousand people. They got acquired a few years ago for over a billion dollars. So tremendously successful uh, business. And what were some of the things that you were able to have exposure to by working with a company that was a rocket ship like that? Well, I think it certainly elevated my gaze. Having worked with newspapers, which is obviously very stable, very traditional, very conservative, things doesn't happen very quickly or easily in that world. So it really transformed my perspective in, in how to get things done, what we are aiming to do, how quickly we want to get there. Uh, I remember pitching a few business ideas to my line managers, and he, he said, Chris, this can only make us $10 more million. I don't think it's worth our time. Uh, and just that mindset, if something isn't going to bring in 50 or 100 or a billion dollars, why are we even bothering? Uh, so I think that helped me to think bigger uh, and to expand my own horizon of the art of the possible. Now, in this case for you, you know, eventually you uh, realize that it's time for you to start your own thing. You know, at what point, you know, did the idea or the concept come to mind and, and how did you go about, you know, launching it because i mean becoming a first-time entrepreneur is a big deal it's a big leap of faith and i'm wondering what was that incubation process for you well I, there was a number of sort of data points that i kind of came across in this period uh, in my life uh, one of them was uh, having a friend that was trying to launch a Klarna clone in poland and i saw him struggling to raise money uh, to get the capital to lend to consumers and get the capital to build a business uh, and get the capital to get the banking licenses and so on. It was so many hurdles. And, and I really thought that was a, a one big challenge. Um, similarly, uh, um, I, I came across a company in the UK called Pay For Later. Um, and their business model is very similar to Klarna with the one significant difference is that they don't do any of the lending. Instead, they partner with banks. And then they offer the combination of their software and the banking uh, provider to the retailers. And I even pitched this to my friend saying, hey, this could totally solve your problems. Uh, instead of having you to become the bank, instead of you becoming regulated, you can just focus on building the business and partner with the banks. And he said, Chris, you know, I, this is my idea. I think this is the way it needs to go. And I said, well, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. So it was a combination of things that I saw in my, in my surroundings, effectively, that led me to create Divido uh, together with my two co-founders. Uh, so Divido's business idea is very similar to Klarna in the, in the sense that we're offering buy now, pay later. But the significant way we're different is that we only build the software. 
and we license it to companies that want to compete with Klarna, other banks or, or to big retailers that want to work with multiple providers of credit and therefore needs to manage the interface themselves in-house. So that was our kind of uh, unique uh, take on buy now, pay later. And how were you guys making money there? I mean, how, what was the pricing and, and, and anything else that you can share around the business model? Yeah, so in the beginning, we were approaching SMEs. So we would charge a setup fee, usually 49 to 99 pounds a month. Uh, then we charge um, a monthly fee, which again, and that could be another 49 to 99 pounds a month. And then we charge a transaction fee. So whatever uh, they were processing, we would take 1% to 2%. And, and those were the three ways that we were extracting value from, from the buy now, pay later space. So at what time do you realize, hey, you know, it's probably better if we just focus, you know, most of our efforts into enterprise type of sales? Yeah. So we had over a thousand SME retailers after a few years using our solution. Um, and we had a few bigger clients approaching us. Uh, the first one, they actually came through our website. They clicked on the chat button and, and we responded and it was Lenovo. So one of the world's biggest computer manufacturers, uh, and we thought it was someone that was joking with us. So we couldn't believe our luck. You know, we've been dealing with Mrs. Jones Art Gallery in Bristol and, and, uh, and uh, Sarah's DJ equipment store in Edinburgh. Nothing bad against those guys at all, but they're obviously significantly smaller players than the likes of, of global consumer electronics manufacturers. Um, so we, we ended up uh, speaking to them, qualifying them, uh, and they ended up signing up with us as the first enterprise client. Um, what they liked about the technology is that it allows you to uh, use different lenders in different countries because, as you may be aware, uh, very few lenders can lend money to consumers all over the world. It's usually very regionally restrictive, for example, only in the UK or only in the US. Um, so that's what Lenovo really uh, liked. But the problem with Lenovo is that they have, uh, and other enterprise clients, is that they have incredibly high standards uh, so we really needed to, to up our game um, so after a few months we recognized we were making a lot of money on the bigger clients but taking a lot of energy and we had to really challenge ourselves to figure out how to prioritize SMEs versus enterprise and, and after a series A uh, the board took a decision to exit the SME space entirely so we can double down and focus our headspace our money uh, on those enterprise clients. And what is it like uh, dealing with enterprise uh, clients and, and more specifically dealing with banks? You know, that's not easy. Yeah. So, I mean, the good thing with the SMEs, which is why it makes perfect sense for a lot of startups to start with those if you're targeting uh, business clients, is that you could get hold of the owner with one call and you could potentially get a, a signed deal literally on the back of one phone call. Uh, we had one sales guy. He did a, a five-day close he called them on the Monday, on by Friday, they were transacting on our platform. So that's obviously great when you want to show investors numbers, show growth and so on. Uh, but the numbers are very small, as we touched on earlier. Uh, the big difference uh, and perhaps obvious difference is with enterprise is that they are, there's not necessarily one decision maker. There's usually 10, 15 people involved in signing off any, any sort of big significant investment or change. Um, and that takes time. So, A, identifying those right peoples, convincing all those peoples, going through all the due diligence steps and all the hoops, even to be a prudent supplier or vendor, you know, that alone takes six, nine months. Uh, and that's even before you started actually finalizing the contract, perhaps, or even starting the, the build, which, again, can take another six, uh, nine months. So, yeah, tremendously 
long sales cycles from five days to two years end to end. Now, in this case, I mean, it's same. It's it's really interesting too, like the way that you would go about financing a company like this one. You know, in, in this case, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Yeah, so Dividers raised over fifty million dollars. The first fundraise was uh, roughly one million dollars. Um, and interestingly, uh, we, me and my co-founders, we were working on this business for a year, and the last sort of three, four months is when we were in a position to start fundraising. And we had meetings with 50, 60 investors, and everyone said no. Everyone said, well, PayPal can just copy this. Um, And in April 2015, uh, we were running out of of personal money to sustain ourselves. Uh, I was even starting to look for, for jobs. Uh, but but we had a breakthrough. One investor said, well, we won't give you the full amount, but we'll give you half. Uh, and at that point, we were only asking for half a million. That's what we were starting with. And uh, the investor was a company called Initial Capital. Um, and that was like a turning point for us. I actually even just weeks before I had to sell my, my I had an old BMW. I got 10,000 pounds, which will give me a few more months to, to live off. So I sold the, literally the only asset I had at that point uh, to, to brace myself for a few more months of fundraising. So it, it was on the, on the brink of, of not happening. But interestingly, when that first investor said yes for half of the amount, almost every subsequent conversation we had from that point onwards turn into yeses because i guess investors they have a fear of missing out that's a totally real thing Um, and we get the kind of almost social validity or validation by getting that first investor to to say yes to us and in the end we did not only fill the round we didn't just reach the 500 as i as i alluded to we actually oversubscribed by 100 percent. we raised just over a million pounds in that first fundraise so from being a, from almost walking away from creating this business altogether to selling the only asset I had left at the brink of personal you know ruin, uh, it everything turned and literally four six weeks later uh, everything uh, were completely different. So yeah, that's uh, the starting point of our fundraising journey. I mean, obviously you you've raised quite a bit of money, and that was a pretty interesting lesson there, like the importance of engineering fear of missing out. So. How, I mean, obviously there's a lot of people that are probably tuning in now and, and listening and, and wondering, hey, you know, like, how should I go creating that fear of missing out so that, you know, maybe I'm able to put myself in a position like Chris where all of a sudden you get one and then everything else is, is much easier after. Yeah, so I think the key is that um, you don't want to drip feed uh, investor engagements. You want to kind of go all in in one massive hit so spend a lot of time doing upfront research that at divided we call it blueprinting so you map out all of the players in our space who their investors are most of those will not be interested so we put them on the on the red list or block list um, and then we focus on who else is uh, similar in this space who's act, who's investing in fintech who's investing in uk in our case uk based companies um, so that we had a really clear idea. And by the way, we didn't really do this for the first round, but we got better as we as we went along. Uh, so we had a critical mass, of like a hundred plus investors for each subsequent round that we did, and we would we would approach all of them at the same time within the within the same few weeks. We would email them all, LinkedIn them all, 
Um, and and that's, that's the other thing. You, you also don't want to rely on just having one email to or phone number or maybe email probably the most likely. Um, you want to map out two or three people at each of those firms that potentially could be a, a way in for you. Because as we know, people can be on holiday. People's emails can go to spam. Um, and that's probably the other thing that you don't just want to email them and sit back and wait and hope that's going to work. You also want to find them on LinkedIn and, and message them there as well. And if there's another way, like if you can meet them in person, if you're attending an event, like we went to Money 2020 quite a lot and a lot of investors would, would go there in our space. So I think that's the key thing. You have to identify all of the right people, all of their contact details and hit them as hard as you can, as fast as you can in a short period of time as you can. And that obviously assumes that you have a very compelling uh, business case that illustrates that this is a huge opportunity and this is why you're uniquely positioned to capture this opportunity in a, in a way that kind of resonates and is understandable and relatable. I mean, Divido is a relatively easy product to pitch. Everyone understands why consumers use credit. Um, it's almost like a no-brainer. And, and our approach, coupled with that, made it a very easy decision for investors to make. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. You guys have raised money from all types of profiles. I mean, you've raised from angels, even Series A, you already got people like American Express. I mean, which is a, you know, quite early, no, but it's still it's great, an amazing uh, company. And then, you know, like also going more into like the VC traditional type of route. So what is the difference from each one of those profiles? I mean, what's the way of engaging with them and then also to continue to manage that relationship? Yeah. So in the beginning, whilst our largest investor was an institutional early stage investor, we had a long tail of smaller uh, high net worth individuals. They putting in anything from 10,000 to 50,000 uh, pounds each. Uh, and you're absolutely right. It's about managing that, managing them and managing their expectations. Some of them would email me every other week asking for updates, which is obviously not really practical. So we had to sort of tell everyone that, no, we don't do ad hoc one-on-one -on -one 
updates. We do a quarterly or bi-monthly update and we give the same to the angels as we did to the institutional investors. I think that's like the first thing to manage expectations up front and to not bend backwards and do anything and everything an angel might ask from from time to time. I think that's one key difference. Uh, another key difference, and, and going back to the point around fear of missing out, I would argue that one of the main reasons we were able to convince Amex to invest, to your point, they wouldn't typically do deals of that size that early on. But we were fortunate enough to have been selected by MasterCard to join something called StartPath, which is their global platform to um, engage with fintechs effectively. Uh, and on the back of that partnership, they had the right to invest should they choose to do so in our subsequent funding round. Uh, and they took the decision to invest in Divido. So it made it very easy for me then to call American Express and say, hey, uh, MasterCard is investing. Would you be interested? And, and clearly, I did the same thing with Visa. Now, Visa, at this time, they were in the process of, uh, I'm not sure if you remember this, but Visa used to be Europe and the US, and they merged. And there was for a few years, Visa wasn't really doing much in fintech, which is why MasterCard signed all of the early stage uh, fintechs uh, to, to use their cards and the card rails. So Visa was, didn't really have a good point of contact. But anyways, fear of missing out definitely worked in the case of Amex and MasterCard. Uh, and again, the difference between our institutional investors and angels is that unlike them, we can actually work with these VC, these corporate VCs to gain to get business. So the, the key thing there is not so much what we can do for them, but what they can do for us. Uh, who do they know that we want to speak to? Who do they have relationships that we want to work with? Um, and so on. Uh, so MasterCard and Amex has been, was a tremendous catalyst for Divido, not just from the money perspective, but also from a credibility perspective. To be able to say to prospect employees, come work with us, we're backed by Amex and MasterCard, to prospect clients, hey, uh, you should trust us. Look, these guys trust us. Uh, and, and on top of that, to get an introduction from MasterCard uh, is is uh, incredible. Like, for example, they introduced us to lastminute.com, which is one of the biggest online travel agents in, in Europe. And on the back of that, we did a tremendously successful deal with, with them. So, um, yeah, very different dynamics and benefits. Um, and, and I really see value in, in having all of them at different stages of, of your journey. Now, in this case, I mean, you guys raised a quite a bit of money during the COVID time. So how was like raising money, you know, at that point? Yeah, so in total, uh, I raised $50 million for, for Divido. And again, just to be super clear, Divido does not lend any money. So we are just a software company. So this money goes straight to hiring engineers, product development, marketing, sales, and so on. This is not money that we lend to consumers in any shape or form. That's what our clients do with their money, our bank clients effectively. Um, so we had raised, uh, in the last round, we did um, $30 million. So it was the, our Series B, it was the biggest round. The plan was to do about half of that. Um, and we started approaching strategic investors because we knew they would take the, the longest. So the fundraise started maybe April, May. Uh, so that just as COVID has, the lockdown had sort of come into force uh, almost globally, uh, we started fundraising. And yeah, for the first few months, investors were a little bit kind of on edge to try to figure out what's going on. And a lot of investors, they, during a time of crisis, like the one we're seeing now, they become a little bit like a hedgehog. They kind of turn inwards. 
They're trying to understand what's going on with their existing investments. What can they do to help them effectively? Which means that if you're a new company trying to pitch for their attention or raise money from them, um, you will be kind of second tier in their mind in terms of priorities. So yeah, so it did take us a few months to to get going with the fundraise. Uh, we were planning on closing by the end of, of 2020. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it took longer than that. Um, fortunately, we had some very good strategic uh, corporate clients that also did investments. So we were able to have conversations with them. And in the end, in the spring of 2020, one, we got a firm a term sheet from HSBC and ING to lead uh, our Series B. Uh, and, and that was the, again, fear of missing out. They became those anchor investors, the anchor names that gave confidence to a, a long list of other investors that joined at the same time, uh, which is why we were so oversubscribed again, almost doubling what we were looking to initially raise. So uh, very recently, you decided to step down from, from the company. I mean, as the CEO, so so walk through that, you know, thought process. Sure, yeah. So I've been working with Divido all day, every day from, at that point for the last sort of seven years. Uh, it's a very all-consuming, as, as you'll know, and I'm sure other entrepreneurs you've spoken to will, will testify to. Um, and as you know, the business had changed a lot. We went from SMEs to large enterprise deals. And I very much felt that there will never be a good time for me to exit. So it was kind of about finding what's the least bad time to, to leave the business. And I felt that the business was in an incredibly stable position. We had signed some landmark deals with global players. Uh, we had a clear path to break even. Uh, we, were, we had just um, signed a tremendous chairman, the former uh, CEO of PayPal, EMEA. Uh, I hired a fantastic CFO. Um, and the team was very stable. Um, we had the clients, we had the team, and we had the money. Most importantly, we had the money in the bank. And that was the, the final kind of deciding point for me to say, this is the point when I'm comfortable to step down. I still have a significant shareholding in Divido, so I very much wanted to continue to prosper and be successful, and I'm their, the biggest fan. Um, but it gave me the opportunity to pursue other interests and other opportunities. What is that transition process like? You know, where, you know, here you are, the founder of the business, the CEO of the business, and you want to make sure that you're able to preserve, you know, what you've built and what you've created and that, you know, people are not going to destroy it right overnight. So what is that transition process to make sure that you're able to uh, swap yourself with someone else that is going to be able to carry that flag in the same way or perhaps in a better way so that, you know, the legacy, you know, is there? Yeah, no, absolutely. And for me, it comes back to the team. So the people that that was left when I stepped down were people I've been working with all day, every day for the last one, two, three, four, even five years. So I feel that they knew me. They knew what I wanted to do. I think I had uh, shared with them the vision of where this company could go. And I felt that they felt that, you know, in their hearts as well. So I felt very comfortable with them staying. Also, you know, we were three co-founders. Uh, the One of the co-founders, he left three years ago. Uh, and the uh, third co-founder, he is still in the business. So I, we also have some longevity through through that relationship. And we're still, you know, very good friends. We're very close in that sense. Uh, but in terms of the process itself, it's something that I've been discussing with my chairman for over two years, or almost two years. So it wasn't something that, uh, you know, a, a, a quick decision on my part or a, a 
quick sort of exit in terms of the planning for this. Uh, bringing on board a professional CFO was uh, one of the key milestones because she would be the interim CEO when I stepped down. So that was another uh, key influencer, knowing that the people were in place and that we were doing this in an organized fashion. We, wouldn't, we didn't want to spook the employees. We didn't want to spook our investors. We didn't want to spook uh, our clients. So, yeah, I think it was kind of like a textbook example of how I would wish for anyone to be able to exit their, their business. And, and what's next for you, Chris? Well, uh, knowing that I was uh, moving on, uh, I started working on a book last year called How Banks Innovate, because um, as I mentioned, whilst we started working with SMEs and then eventually focused on enterprise retailers, around the same time, we also started licensing the platform to banks directly for them to brand it as if it's their own and give it to their own retail clients. So over the, over the last sort of five, six years, I've met with over 100 banks literally all over the world from from Africa to South America to Australia to Asia, North America, and obviously all over Europe. And Divido is fortunate enough to work with 10 of some of the most significant players in the space. Uh, that was the inspiration for me to, basically, I was running workshops for these banks around how, how buy now, pay later is evolving, how banks need to compete with this, how this is eating up their credit card revenues or consumer lending revenues, um, and working with them how to come up with a plan to transition from the old way of thinking to the new way of thinking, uh, and effectively managing their innovation process because they hadn't done this before. Some of the banks we worked with said, this is the first new product they've launched in 10 or 15 years. So banks, like most big traditional organizations, are very slow moving. They're very risk averse for very good reasons. Uh, and there's a, there is a perception that banks do not innovate. Um, and I wanted to dispel that myth by sharing what I've already seen in my job uh, by publishing this book uh, about how different banks are approaching innovation. So there are 16 different banks around the world, uh, and I'm covering topics like buying, building, partnering, and acquire or changing ways of working. Um, so what I've been doing since I stepped down is spending a lot of time with banks on a consulting basis to advise them on specific projects. Um, I've also started investing myself in early stage tech companies. I've done about 20, 24 investments in the last 10 months uh, in fintech, but also beyond that. Um, and I've also taken some time out to decide what I want to do uh, next. And one of those things was to, to move to the U.S., uh, which is where I'm now based. Now, you, you've done other books too. So uh, tell us about those other books and perhaps like, like maybe like one nugget, you know, of, uh, or maybe like something that people, you know, can really take, you know, for themselves from, from this time with you from each one of those books. Yeah, I mean, I think I, there's two ways to answer the question. Uh, when I was working for um, the Daily Mail group, uh, I was asked to, because I was active on social media, they thought I was a, knowledgeable person to help them on social media um, and, and I at the time didn't really know much I started doing research how can corporates already on social media take it to the next level and this was 10 12 years ago so this is very much the beginning of Twitter becoming mainstream and Facebook becoming like staple um, so I was intrigued how you elevate your social media presence when you're already doing social media um, and I realized there was no books there were no guides written addressing businesses and their needs so as i was speaking to people i offered them to contribute chapters uh, and eventually that became a whole book uh, that got published by by wiley and the book was became an amazon bestseller it's called the social media mba 
got translated into multiple languages. And on the back of that, they asked me to do a, a second and a third book, uh, also on social media, but different aspects, uh, best practices, case studies, as well as how to measure the success, the, the ROI as a, as a business, leveraging social media. Um, so what I would say, it's not so much a nugget from the books, but I would say anyone listening, if you're a, if you're a person or professional that wants to further your personal brand it's great that you're posting stuff on on linkedin it's great that you're uh, engaging in local communities and, and contributing as a speaker or guest blogger or whatever it might be but i would challenge everyone to contemplate the opportunity of writing a book i think honestly that everyone carries at least one book within them and i think it's very daunting and challenging to write like a novel like a story but if we talk about what we do all day every day our day jobs i think we have a ton of experience uh, that is definitely worth worthy of sharing. So I think that would be my one recommendation. Why have you not written a book? And what steps can you take to, to write a book? And how can you do that in part-time alongside your day job? Um, and ultimately, not only does it benefit you and your personal brand and you're expanding your network, is also hopefully benefiting your employer or the business you're working for, whether it's your own business or someone else's, uh, if you're able to link what you're talking about to what the business is working on and, uh, and therefore create an opportunity for marketing material, for white papers or whatever else that you can extract on the back of creating this book. Now, for the, uh, you know, one, one thing that I'd like to ask you here is, Imagine if I was to put you into a time machine and I put you back in time to that moment that you were perhaps, you know, working at Glassdoor and thinking about like, what well, was going to be the future and maybe like something that you could do on your own. If you could go back in time and give that younger self, you know, one piece of advice before launching a business, what would you say, you know, and why, given what you know now? I think that everyone should have a go at starting a, a business at some point in their career. I think it's a unique learning opportunity, learning experience. Um, I think it's tremendously it develops you as a professional, develop, develops you as a person. It gives you opportunity to learn new skills, whether it's managing people or managing investors, managing a board, maybe things that you wouldn't necessarily have had the opportunity to do at this point in your career. So by starting a business, you kind of leapfrog maybe traditional career paths and, and hierarchies and, and put yourself in the driving seat. So I think uh, don't be so hesitant. So, so what, what happened was that I, I was fortunate enough to have roughly a one year worth of savings that I didn't need to, to, to earn a living. Uh, as I mentioned, I had to sell my car at the end. So I think it's, you know, you need to recognize, you need to save up to be able to take a step back from earning uh, the traditional salary. So I think that would be the key thing. Start saving to put yourself in a position to not have to take a salary for at least, you know, depending on what industry you're in, you know, up to 12 months maybe. Now, for the people that are listening, uh, Christopher, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the, the easiest. Wonderful. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.